As we prepare now to hear from God's word, I'm going to ask you to please open your Bibles and join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We have been working our way through 1 Thessalonians and we're coming to those last verses. But it seems that as we come to the last verses in 1 Thessalonians, they're, they're packed verses. And so at times earlier in the book, we were able to take large chunks and cover a lot of ground. Now we're into the conclusion and the con conclusion is so meaty that we need to slow down just a bit to make sure that we're, we're taking it in and we're digesting it. And also because sometimes these things are so easy to say. But it is a whole nother step to take these things, to embrace them in our hearts, and by the grace of God, to apply them and live them out in our lives. So listen as I read our section of scripture today. I'm actually going to begin reading a little before and then finish reading a little after the section that we're going to focus on this morning. So I'm going to begin in verse 12 and read through verse 22. Then we're going to pray and consider this section of scripture. We ask you, brothers, to respect those that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you as we always do when we read your word. And when it is our heart's desire to lay hold of it. Lord, today really we consider a section of scripture that is so abundantly clear. That doesn't require much in terms of explanation as to what it means. But we do need God. The powerful and gracious stirring of your spirit of God within our spirit to bring conviction and correction. To bring necessary, valuable and pertinent application of these truths in our lives. God, we come together at this time understanding that what we have taken up here is the very word of God. That these instructions, indeed these commands that you lay upon your people, they are required of us. And to do them is to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. God, stir our hearts with a deep and passionate desire to live for your glory and pleasure. Lord, grant that I would be able to speak your word clearly. Grant that I would be faithful in all that I would say. Enable me, God, to be able to speak in a way that is, is so clearly understood as to what your word calls from your people. Lord, and I would ask that those that you have assembled here this morning, that you would be pleased to help and assist each one of us, that we would give attention to your word. Lord, that we would indeed take it in 
and it would dwell richly in us, that it would continue to strengthen and conform and correct us and move us to Christ-likeness, godliness, a way that really displays your glory in this world, that displays your love among one another, and that you are pleased when you look upon us, your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when I take this up, the first thing that we're going to do, which, which may not be the uh, happiest thing, I had originally said we're, we're looking to, uh, I was going to start from verse 16, because we covered verse 15 last week. But no, we are going back to verse 15 again, and here's the reason why. Now, it's not because when I read verse 15, I think, well, I got to go back there again because these people need it. Although, it kind of is. Because I look at myself and I think, every single week I need it. I need to be reminded afresh of this because it is an approach and an, a mentality that uh, is at variance with the desires of the flesh that wage war within me. And secondarily, because we saw momentarily flashed up on the screen behind there, the title for this morning's sermon is, This is always the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And this is among those listed, is listed under the things that we ought always to do. Now, and so the next section that we're getting ready to cover says you've got to always be doing this and always be doing this and always be doing this. And you begin to think, oh my, so, but we live in the age of multitasking, so it, it shouldn't be that difficult. And, and here's the wonderful things. Within the gracious working of the Spirit of God, these things blend. These things coalesce. They come together in a wonderful woven fabric of reality. That they're not just somehow separate and segmented things. They actually organically join together for a rich and living whole. And so as we begin to unpack this, I want us to, to see this. And, and we love this. And, and I always remind us when we come to these kinds of passages, it says there in verse 17 at the end of it, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, this is helpful because in your own life and in the lives of people, you know, from time to time, they're going to face circumstances and they're going to ask themselves this question. What is God's will for me? What is God's will for me in this job? What is God's will for me uh, in this opportunity? In this city, in that city? What, in all, what is God's will for me? And we all would love to know exactly what it is. Which decision, yes or no? Take or not take, accept or deny. Which one is the will of God? Now, with regard to a lot of practical decisions we make in our lives, we do not have clear chapters and verses. And God has given us a great degree of freedom, where with, with much prayer, with godly counsel, with patience and consideration, we seek according to the best wisdom we have to make the best decision we can. With the great confidence that 
Wherever we find ourselves a week from now, a year from now, we didn't somehow escape God or surprise him by getting there somehow apart from him. But we know that his hand of providence, his purposes and his care absolutely oversee and rule over everything. But here's something that I want to remind us. In the midst of those challenging decisions, what should I do? Or... What is the will of God for me? I want to remind us of this. Let's not get too caught up in here or there. This or that. Because I tell you right here written in the scripture. It clearly tells us this is always the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So whether you should move or not move. Whether you should take that job or not. I don't know the will of God regarding that, but I know this. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you now and always. And it's unchanging. And so sometimes we get we even unnerve ourselves. I don't know what to do. I I only want to do God's will. Well, take the practical steps according to the best wisdom you can. But while you're seeking to to find the wisdom of God and his leading and direction, don't put these things aside. Far too often, the dear individuals who are wanting to know God's will regarding personal decisions are not so interested in God's will with regard to daily, pervasive, practical living. Not what decision should I make, but what would God have me do now? Not only in this situation, but today we're looking at what God would have you do in every situation, in every location, in every event, in every circumstance. If you're ever wavering, I wonder what God's will is for me. This is a solid go-to at all times and in all places. And that's helpful. And so I want us to begin to see that. And then the first thing it has. And most of these are. I know a lot of us don't like grammar. But the word of God is given to us in language. And language comes with grammar. And grammar actually helps to convey ideas. So let me go ahead and grammar you a little bit. Most of these except for one. Are in the verb. That is the action. Imperative. You know what an imperative is? It is a command. Like we've been discussing, it's not a general suggestion. It's not a good idea. It's a command. So since it is a command, and ultimately a command of who? Of God. I might go ahead and say it is also a good idea. It is always a good idea to obey the commands of God. Agreed? But this is not given to us just as a good idea. It's given to us as a command of God. These are non-negotiables. And what, what's challenging about it, they are in the present active. Present active means you do it now, and what else? You keep on doing it. And you keep on doing it. So it is a command that you do it, and you keep doing it. There's no backing off. There's no wavering, there's no straying. And it's in the second person plural, which carries a strong sense, which means it's not just a suggestion for some of us. It's for everybody in the church. 
You know, because a lot of times I know on some of these strong commands, we feel very comfortable to look around as I wish that he would do that. I wish that he would live this out. I mean, the world, my world would be a better place if he would just live this out. If he would just live this out, then I might, too. Well, that's not how this works. Your obedience, your commitment to these things are not to be contingent on the commitment of other individuals. They are to be absolutely wholly rooted in the one who commanded them. Now, we are to always do these, and we should also note this. The one who has told us to always be attending to these, he is always attending to us. It's not, you know, it's challenging because it's not like anyone and anything else that exists. We exist in a world where, where somehow someone can give a command. Don't touch that. But a person can look away for a split second. You know, the, the stories of families traveling across country in, you know, packed into a car for long hours. And one sibling decides they like touching their other sibling. Don't touch me. All right. Neither of you. Nobody in this car touches anybody in this car. Okay. The rule is laid down. But what inevitably is the temptation? I didn't. Because I didn't see it, you didn't do it? Well, you might be able to fool me. And maybe you've also got the wicked one where the person doesn't do it. Stop it. And they messed with you. But then you also got the double wicked person who tries to come within millimeter of touching and just let it hover there. I'm not touching you. All of that, what, what, what's motivating that? Is it love? No, it, it's antagonism. And, and, and sometimes you can get away with, with what you think are mild, mediocre, or momentary compromises. You think you can get away with them. And you know what? In this world, you can. You can fool daddy. You can fool mama. You can fool spouses. You can fool any man for a moment. Catch them off guard. Catch them distracted. At what moment do we think that that's going to happen? Is it that we can get someone, go over there and distract them so that while they're looking away, I'll pocket this. That works in the world, does it? But can anyone, even for a moment, distract the absolute and total awareness of the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present, almighty God? See, it's not the same thing. And so we're, 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 the things that we might make momentary excuses and say we can get away with it. Let's take these things seriously. The one who has said always do these things is always watching us. And what I want us to know is this. Sometimes that idea that he's always watching us, we can take that with a negative sense. You know, he's always watching us. 
gotcha. I knew eventually you'd break. No, no, no. Thankfully, that, that's not what God isn't watching us just waiting for that moment when we fail or when we stumble so that he can get us and say he got us. Praise God. That's not the design. He's not simply watching us in judgment. He's watching us in love. So when I want us to think this, uh, that he is always watching me, I don't want you to just cower. I better do right lest I be judged. No, I want you to think I, I, I want to do right because he's watching. I, I want him to be pleased. I want him to take delight in what I'm doing because I love him and in thought of all that he's done for me I want to bring him delight and pleasure that's a it's a different mentality and sometimes I think we too strongly take the uh, the the fear of judgment mentality well we're not we're not afraid of ultimate judgment surely God does in our sinfulness to those whom he loved he does discipline us but nonetheless i want us to, to realize this god is always watching he's called us to always do these things and the first thing we see here is to be always active in good it says there i mean in contrast see that no one repays evil for evil that's their own responsibility when they see it's happening to tell people this is not right this is not what we're about this is not who we are but do what always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, again, those ideas of seeking to do good, it kind of throws us back even on the verses just before that. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. All of those are expressions of doing good to one another. But what's interesting is this, it says always seek not simply always do good to others, but always seek to do good. It's a different nuance there, and I want to draw that out because it's a little bit stronger. Always do good is just in the ordinary activities of life. When you talk with someone, when you interact with someone, when everything's going on, do good to them. Seeking to do good is not waiting for opportunities and waiting for occasions seeking to do good has deliberate intentions the term seek there is the idea of follow after but really it's strongly than just follow after it is that idea of pursue with intensity and vigor to do good to one another it is have an agenda and a design. It's more than just, I generally want to be a good-spirited, good-hearted, good-kind person to all. But no, more than that. I want to intentionally find ways that I can do good. Now, what's strong about this, also in the context of this, it says to do good, first of all, to one another. There was always that, that prize and privilege for the family of faith, isn't there? We've got to do good to one another. But so often, what do the scriptures do? 
Yeah, we have our, our people, we have our priority in the family of faith, but then what does it often say? And to everyone. Wait a second. To one another and to everyone. So let's take a moment and make a list of those we don't have to do good to. Are you done? Yeah. Why? Because how long is the list? It's an empty list. Now, if, if I was to say, make a list of, the, of people you think have forfeited their right for you to do good to them. Tragically, you might be able to make that list. <laughs> but after making that list, you need to remind yourself of this. Are these people on your list under either of these two categories? One another? Professing believers, part of the body of Christ, or everyone. And I'm pretty sure everyone on that list that you think has forfeited, no longer deserves the right for your good doing, is under one of those categories. Although in your darkest moments, you probably think, nope, beast. You know, they, they're not in the... But that, again, is not, not the idea. Now, how does this work? And this is part of the challenge. Because in certain ways, we are called to follow the example to imitate God. To imitate Christ. In other things, we are told these things belong entirely to him. And you don't get to imitate them at all. Now, with regard to mercy and love and good doing, when, when, those who are blessed are the merciful, so they shall receive, for they shall receive mercy, there's a certain sense in which whatever anyone has done to me, whatever wrong they have done, no matter how many wrongs they have done, pile them up, multiply them over against one another. Is it still match the offense that I, as a sinner, have done against my holy God? And yet, though the divide between and, and the vileness of, of my unworthiness and undeservedness to God's greatness is far greater than whatever anyone has done to me. And yet, what God, has God done to me? He has shown mercy and love. And not just once, right? Most of us who are believers are aware that still on the odd occasion, we sin. I hope you're catching the language there. It's more than the odd occasion. With regularity, we sin. And yet, what does God continue to do? That's it. I gave you a hundred chances. Let me take a hundred. Wow. Yeah. We've already exhausted the hundred opportunities. And yet we've not exhausted his mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. But know this. If it were not for the grace of God at work in us. How great would our sin be? If we were still under the dominion and captivity of sin. How much more would the things that we'd be doing? 
And so when we begin to understand this, if God would have that kind of mercy towards me, he continues to forgive me. He continues to allow me to confess my sin and I can draw near to him in confidence for forgiveness in Christ. Then is there anything that someone could have done that I could say, that's it, you're cut off. Enough of you. Don't come around here anymore. Can we say that? Or should we say that? Probably better than can we. Because can, obviously we can. But should we say that? Is it the right idea? Always seek to do good. Well, what if they've just done bad to me? What if they've just kicked me in the shins? What should I do to them? I mean, let's be realistic. A little kick to their shins and they might learn their lesson. Is that not how you think? Because that's how I think in, in, in my most normal nature. That's how I think. But what does the scripture say? They've done evil to you. What do you do? Now, again, part of the challenge is they've done bad to you. They've done things that are unwanted and undesirable to you. Probably that's more helpful when you say don't return evil for evil. Well, yeah, I'm not going to kill them. No, no, this is a broader word than that. Everything that they could do to you that you find unlikable, unwanted and undesirable. Don't return to them things that would be unwanted, unlikable and undesirable. Actually, even when they've done that to you, what is your response? Good. Now, we can make a game of that, too. They've done something wrong. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I really enjoyed that. If you want to kick me again, go ahead. That's unrealistic, too. And that's not even really doing good to them. That's just, you know, that's potentially trying to provoke them or being facetious. No. How do you try to do good to them? Now, how do we do that? Here's the difference. We do good to our enemies because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We don't have to teach them a lesson so they don't do that again because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. So we get our responsibility in those circumstances is to live with, with the preference and deference to others honoring them considering their good even pursuing seeking to do their good at all times while knowing this whatever they've done even as god is seeing me seek to do good to them god has seen what they've done to me they got to answer to him for that you know, they're going to stand under his discipline if they're the loved ones or they're going to stand under his vengeance if they're the anyone outside in the world. I don't have to retaliate. I don't have to make it right. And, and, and part of this is also this. Sometimes we think here's another answer. I'm not going to return evil for evil. I get that that's wrong. So here's where I'm going to live. In the land of indifference. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to just stay here in the island of apathy. I don't even care about this. Say what you want about me. Do what you want me. I could care less about you. That's another tendency that we have. If we've somehow overcome the, the tendency to retaliate. The next tendency is, is to. Uh, yeah. I, 
Here's the answer. Distance. I'm not going to have anything to do with them. Because here's the thing. If I don't come around them, they can't kick me in the shins. Limited reach. I'm free. Well, but if you're keeping the distance, how are you going to do good to them? You're to, supposed to set forth deliberate designs to do good to them. And, and the, the sense is this, well, why would I do that? I mean, I'll go there to do good to them and they're going to hurt me. And then what do I do? You go again and you go again because when does always stop? Yeah, it doesn't. And you say, but I'm not getting anything, anything out of it. It's not working. It's not changing them. The goal is not to change them. No doubt the desire will be there. But the goal is what? To please the one who has made the command. And, and if you can see, actually, if when you go to do good to them, they say, oh, thank you, you're wonderful, possibly the most amazing person in the world. Then we feel pretty good about ourselves. And then we have, we might say, carnal motives to do good to others. Because we get the praise, we get the appreciation. It's a lot harder to keep doing things to people who knock you down. You know? The, you know the idea, open the door for someone and they come... Push you out of the way and go through yourself. What's the temptation next time? You see them coming? I'm not gonna, should I open the door for them? Well, let me open it. Ooh, pushed again. Oh, no. Forget it. I'm not going to try. Well, why not continue to do good to them? It's too hard. It's too hard if you're looking at them. And it's too hard if you're looking at you. Because it does hurt. It's not too hard if you're looking at the commander. As Paul says, we make it our aim, whether absent or present, to please him. Our goal is to please our enlisting officer. And that just changes absolutely everything. So there has to be a deliberate intention to do good. To every believer and to everyone we ought to be committed to deliberately seeking kind, helpful, loving, beneficial actions. That is a hard, hard thing. And, and, and part of the challenge is uh, the scriptures remind us, way back in Leviticus it had said this, you, in Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I love how many of those iterations of the law would either be preceded by or would be followed by the phrase, I am the Lord. Well, why should I do this? Because he is the Lord. Why should I continue to do this when they continue to knock me down? Because he continues to be the Lord. You need to always do it. Because he is always going to be the Lord. Let's move on to the second one. 
in this, in this passage. Uh, not only are we to always be active in good, but we are to always have attitudes of gladness. And this, is a, this one is a lot harder one. Um, it, it really is the, the very next verse here, verse 16, that says, Rejoice always. Oh, boy, sometimes rejoicing is easy, isn't it? When all is well, when there's been a triumph, when there's been a victory, when there's been a success. When is it not easy to rejoice? When there's been a loss, when there's been a defeat, when there's been a hurt, it's not easy. But part of the challenge in my mind, and, and I, and I want to draw this out, is when it says rejoice always, rejoicing is not necessarily something that's audibleized. You know, my tendency was to think of something, rejoicing is something that comes out of my mouth. That my heart and my mind are, this is misery, but great is the Lord, is holy and just. And, I, and, I, and I'm rejoicing, but inside, I'm a different direction. Well, that's not what the idea, the idea of rejoicing is really a reference to an inner state of joy, gladness, and delight. Oh my now, I will say this, if somehow I could focus on the words of that song that I was singing and, and just really call to mind the richness of that reality, yeah, then things would begin stirring inside of me. Because as my mind is taken away from the pain, from the mistreatment, from the issues, from the problem, and my mind is set on, on his majesty, on his richness, uh, on, the, on the promises, on the hope that is in heaven, on the righteousness that is mine in Christ, there is an interchange. Also, just a fun aside, many are taught growing up in the church as we go through Sunday school, the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. It's actually not. In the, in the Greek, rejoice always is a shorter verse. In uh, Jesus wept is three words in the Greek. All right, I can count Jesus wept, but it's, it's actually wept the Jesus in, 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 the, in the Greek. Whereas this is only two words. One is Jesus wept is like 16 letters. And this is like 13 letters. So this is a, a, a smaller, but rejoice always. Boy, in order to do that, I have to be in a frame of mind that is always considering my glorious God. It is always aware of the eternity and his ultimate purposes, his pervading power. Because if, I, if my mind strays from the majestic one, what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, rejoice always. This has got to be one of the greatest stumblers we face. Because I'm not constantly repaying evil for evil. But I am with far too frequency not in, in an inward frame of mind where I am delighting. In the fact that I am his, he is mine. 
He has attended to and orchestrating every circumstance and event in my life. And it is designed for his glory and for my good. And he's entrusted his glorious message of redemption to us to share with others. And the privileges we have, the promises that are ours, the hope in Christ, the surety. I mean, it's just beyond. If we think of it. I mean, we're, we're aware, for example, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. See, that really helps us. You want to rejoice always? Rejoice in the Lord. If your direction of your heart, your mind, your meditation is not Lordward, you are not, not going to be able to rejoice always. I guarantee it. You won't be able to. Even then, as long as you're in the flesh, you're going to continue to struggle this. Now, what's interesting is this. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then in the, in the power of language. And again, I say, rejoice. You don't have to say it again because you already said we've got to always do it. But if the scriptures pile up redundancy... Why is that there? One of the primary reasons why it's there is because one, it's important. Two, it's difficult. And so we need to be reminded of that. But that, that, that's the mentality. Rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 32 verse 11 says this. Be glad in the Lord. Now, the, for a long time... These things are hard for me. We don't use the word glad anymore. Since it was taken up by a company that produces trash bags. It's hard to think of. Uh, glad has become sort of a trite term. You know. Uh, when's the last time we said. You know. How are you doing? Are, are you glad today? Are you glad? Or called someone and they said. I'm feeling glad today. I mean. I never hear that word anymore. And, and, but it carries a sense of inward joyfulness and delightedness. Now I ask you this. Wouldn't you love that to be your prevailing deportment? The, the, the way that you primarily feel and think is with a sense of delight and inner abiding joy and peace and vitality and energy. Wouldn't you love that? Well, the scripture calls on us to always be characterized by that. I'm thankful for the mercies of God and all of my failings to his perfect commandments. But it also not only calls us to that, it directs us how to make progress in that experience. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous one. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. God, while I was dead in my sin, you made me alive. God, while I was a lover of all of these useless, fleeting, temporary pleasures, you set me free from those temptations, and you showed me what really matters. God, thank you. When, when we're aware of the myriad of mercies that are ours every morning, how would we not rejoice? Well, I think here's the problem. Our minds don't go to those mercies. And tragically, in the, in the 
experience of the Christian life, prayer oft primarily becomes petition. We go to the Lord, not, not to adore and to, and to praise and to exalt and just to meditate and to glory in him. We often go to him because we got a little something, something we need. We go with a, a, a petition or we got a problem. So we go to him with some moaning, some grumbling, some issues, some matters. And here's the beauty. We can and we should. We're called upon to pour our hearts out before the Lord. And here's one of the unhealthy things, and, and we want to be careful with this. There are training methods that train us how to pray better. Which, and, and oftentimes they'll say, start with this. You know, start with the praise and the honor and the adoration. And then work your way in and then confess your sins and get yourself. And then get on thanks. And finally, you get your requests. There's value in that mentality, but there's also a struggle. Because sometimes it's like, okay, if I'm going to actually get my requests answered, I got to kind of go through the motions. Let me throw out a little bit of praise. Let me throw out a little bit of thanksgiving. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. And so we kind of rush through those things because we think to go to our petition straight away, that wouldn't be healthy. So let's, let's work our way through that. But how fast this? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we've allotted a particular period of time to pray in a given morning? If suddenly we found ourselves so captivated in the praise of God and his mercies towards us, his mercies um, revealed in the scripture uh, and his being that we went, oh my goodness, I got to get to work and I, I didn't even get to my petitions. Well, do you have to fear this? Oh no, God's not going to know what I want. He's not going to know what I need and how much I need it. Is that true? What does the scripture tell us? He knows what you have need of before you ask. We ask him because it recognizes our powerlessness, our dependence, and our awareness that everything comes from his hand. But if, you're, if you run out of time to give your petitions, it's going to be okay. It's not like now God's not going to know what I need. He's not going to know what to do because our prayers don't inform God what to do, do they? They don't give him any information. They don't give him any wisdom. They don't change his motivation. He is unchanging. He is powerful and his designs towards us are loving. All of his engagement with us who are his children is the steadfast love of the Lord. Or the way it was translated in the New American Standard, the loving kindness of God. It's wonderful to see those things come together. We better move on to the, the third emotion. Not only always in attitudes of gladness, but again, further, I would say always in awareness of God and always asking God. And so these things kind of go together. Um, rejoice always. And then verse 17 is Pray without ceasing. Again, and someone might want to jump up and say, aha, this one did not say pray always. You're right. It said pray without ceasing. Is that very different? No, that means it doesn't stop. It doesn't end, which kind of means always. This is always God's will for you. Pray without ceasing. Now, what's interesting is we're supposed to have, we should, ought have specific times. 
designated to prayer. Encouraged in the Sermon on the Mount to have those times where you kind of separate yourself from what's going on. And you go into that inner room and you really focus yourselves and you really engage on that. We know that Christ himself so oft in his earthly ministry, what would he do? Separate himself from the others. He would go up the mountain to spend all night at times in prayer and in communion with his father. Those are necessary and those are valuable. But that's not the only times of our prayer. We are to be a people who pray without ceasing. There is to be an ongoing, unceasing awareness that God is with me and I am in his presence. He hears me, you know, and so that when, when things happen, thank you, Lord, for that, you know. God, I need some help in this. And where there's just this, this constant, ongoing communion and life of living with God. God sometimes those those special occasions but again I mean in terms of real relationships that we have with one another our interaction with one another isn't only specific times you know husbands hopefully don't tell their wives and or vice versa you get an hour in the mornings and then 30 minutes in the evening that's it that would be an unhealthy relationship yes in the context of life, what happens? Now, maybe there are more deliberate times to engage one another and interact over the events of the day, the struggles, the challenges, the circumstances of life. There are more deliberate times, but there's, there's a life together, a vibrancy of, of that relationship. And the examples I give somewhat pale because there are times that we are separated from those human individuals. But not so with God. And so when we begin to live with that a deliberate awareness. This good thing that just happened. It's come to me from the hands of the Father. This challenge that, that has just come upon me. Yeah. I'm not alone in that challenge. God sees that challenge. He has purposes in that. And he's with me. He can strengthen me to overcome. He can give me wisdom how to interact. Just the, this awareness. Uh, prayer really is what puts people in the mindset of 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 constant dependence and awareness of God's person and presence. Which is so important because too often prayer has become telling God what I want or getting God to do what I want. Prayer is much, much richer than that. It, it, it is that, that rich, constant communion that fuels the awareness God is sovereign in every circumstance. Thank you, God, for that. God, I need patience right now. That driver, I need, I need help right now with this circumstance. Even, for example, someone would say, how will I do good to that person who's done bad to me? Well, constant in prayer helps you. God, I want to lash out. God, I'm so tempted to, to do something that might be less than good here. Help me God to do good. Help me God to seek to do good. To those who have otherwise intentions. Heart starts to get heavy. 
with whatever it could be, discouragement about self, discouragement about circumstances. How, do we, uh, how will we achieve and maintain a gladness, a rejoicing of heart? That's in communion with God. God, the world is pulling heart, my heart down. My, uh, my sense of my own in- inadequacies is beginning to crush me. Lord, but if we, are, if we pray to him and then we fill our thoughts with rather than our own inadequacy... His absolute sufficiency what begins to happen. How rich, how powerful. And then lastly, we move on to not only that always uh, awareness and asking of God, pray without ceasing. Again, that's not only there, it's through a number of passages in the scripture that re- encourage us to pray without ceasing. The last thing I wanted to draw our attention to is this. It says this, give thanks in all circumstances. That is not the easiest thing. How do I give thanks in all circumstances? I mean, that's, that's a challenge because bad thing happens. That's painful. That has lots of implications. The practical consequences are surely significant. So do I not have to give thanks? No. Give thanks in all circumstances. Well, how do I give thanks in this? This ruins me. This is going to affect things for years to come. And here's the beauty of it. It's going to only affect things for years to come. There's a lot more than the years to come. Remember what Paul says in Romans? I consider this slight momentary affliction. Nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that is prepared for me. And so how can I give thanks in all circumstances? We know this is not my eternity. This, no matter how bad it might be in terms of a defining destructive event in my earthly life. The scripture reminds us that when Jesus, who is your life, appears, we will be with him in heaven. And so we we remember this may spoil, this may thwart, this may cause all kinds of problems in my earthly life. But that my earthly life is not the totality of who I am. Christ and my union with him is the totality of all that I have and all that I am. And he's going to bring it to completion. And these things, they don't go with me. See, in this world, it's, it's quite challenging. People will face issues and they'll think, well, let me change jobs. Let me, let me change circumstances. Let me change spouses. Let me, I mean, the world thinks all kinds of things. And they think the grass is always greener on the other side. Don't they think that? And then they get over there and what happens? Well, it's not that much better. Maybe these problems are gone, but they're replaced by these problems. And one thing that's going to happen wherever you go, you're there. And that itself 
brings its problems. Because whatever weaknesses you have, whatever struggles, whatever trials and compromises that you have, you kind of wish that you could leave them behind by just changing cars, just changing houses. It doesn't happen. It only, those things, we only make progress as God in his mercy continues to change our hearts and minds, renewing them in the image of Christ Jesus. And he does that through his spirit in the, in the revelation of his word. But we are to, the, I, I've got to move on to the last idea. Always audibleize our gratitude. It says this, give thanks in all circumstances. God's. Designs are at work. That's what I can always say, you know, because in some circumstances, I think, how do I say thank you for that? I mean, it's bad for that person. It's bad for that person. It's bad for me. It's bad for mankind and the world. How can I say thank you for that? Well, I can say what? I thank you, God, that you have wise and good designs. In all that you do. And so I thank you. I can thank him in all circumstances. By knowing what? His ways aren't my ways. His thoughts aren't my thoughts. His wisdom is so exceedingly abundantly superlative and superior. That there's no comparison. So that I can thank him in all circumstances. Um, Ephesians 5.20 says this. Give thanks always. And for Everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Always and for everything. Wow, that is remarkably comprehensive. So the second half of these, these commandments really are, really if we look at all of these commandments, they're all related to a, a right commitment to and connection with God. I'm going to be able to do good to people who are doing me evil because of my awareness and desire to delight and please God. I'm going to be able to rejoice always, maintain an inner state of, of, of gladness and delight because when I contemplate all of the mercies and all of the kindness and all of the grace and all of the persevering love that God continues to pour out upon me, and I'm going to be able to, to pray without ceasing because Christ has opened the way. I have continual access. I know that God's designs for me are entirely for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So even in the difficulty, I need not doubt. And that doubt is deferred, sent away when we delight in God. And his providence and his purposes. And then we pray without ceasing because of God's closeness to us and awareness. And we audibleize our gratitude, always expressing and giving thanks to God in all circumstances. This is always the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So listen, we do it because of who God is and all that he is. But listen, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We look at these things and we might say, yeah, I, I can't do this. I can't do it consistently. Were it not for Christ Jesus, we would all be hopeless. 
there would be no way, no hope, no strength, no power. But Christ has accomplished entirely our salvation. He has sent forth his spirit to dwell in us. He has issued these commands through his apostles that the spirit might together with our spirit strengthen us that we would live these things out. And so let us pray and plead with God to cause us to do this. And may we also maybe start to do this. When someone has done evil to us or when we unprovoked at the moment but somehow feel like we've been provoked enough in the past that it's okay. No. When we, when we do bad to others may the Spirit of God convict us to where we say no. You know, to where it'd be like instead, if, if our intentions and our ire begins to swell up, instead of us saying, kick them, maybe we just do a little self-kick, stop that. Hey, right, he's got something better for me because he's glorious. Kind of what we were considering in the morning. Humble your, yourself under the mighty hand of God. When we consider how mighty his hand, how could we not be remarkably humbled? Because he is so glorious and great. Well, let's pray as we prepare for the Lord's Supper together.